Hello, I'm Keith Kaplan, and I'm proud to welcome you to this Diagnexia Dialogue. Diagnexia is an international pathology services company with facilities in Chicago, Dublin, and Exeter, UK. Diagnexia enables your hospital to easily and rapidly send a case for consultation to their expert subspecialists through their cloud-based platform for improved quality and efficiency. They connect leading expert pathologists to your most challenging cases with the goal of positively impacting patient care. Joining me today are Bob McGonigal, publisher of CAP Today, and Dr. Maura Larson from MedStar Health in Washington, D.C. Welcome to all of you, and welcome to Bob and Maura. Thank you. The uh, topic then, or topics for this Diagnexia podcast um, will range from general pathology and laboratory uh, issues as we head into uh, 2023, and at least for those of us in the U.S. have begun a new fiscal year uh, regarding reimbursements. And obviously we'll talk a fair amount about uh, digital pathology as well, use and applications and the future of that. Let me start with you, Bob. Um, as we, as I said, as we enter into 2023, a new fiscal year, uh, the season of uh, proposed Medicare fee schedules, and along with that, Medicare cuts, um, while trying to maintain access and service uh, for care. What do you see for 2023 in terms of pathology reimbursement uh, and laboratory reimbursement? Uh, well, thank you, Keith. I'm very happy to be on the podcast with you today. Uh, as we sit here today, I think all bets are off in terms of what 2023 is going to look like. If the PAMA cuts uh, that are slated to go into effect do go into effect, we're going to be in a terrible environment in 2023. And many people have their fingers crossed that those PAMA cuts will be suspended as they have been for two years now in the wake of the COVID pandemic. Uh, in addition to that, overall, uh, the labor shortage and the pathologist shortage, which is part of that, uh, has affected laboratory and system budgets to the point that uh, margins are as squeezed as I think they have ever been, uh, not only for the pathology labs, but for the systems generally. So on the whole, it's not a cheery prospect as we go into the next year. Dr. Larson is physician executive director in a large uh, metropolitan healthcare system, a large catchment area. Uh, what are you planning for in 2023 in terms of pathologists and laboratory services? Well, I too would like to thank you for inviting me to this podcast and this august group of experts who think about these things all the time. And you're right, we're very concerned about what's going to happen in the current year with the pay cuts that are anticipated. I think that on the ground, what's most of concern is the staffing and personnel issues. This includes both pathologist staffing, 
as well as our laboratory technologists, our histotechnologists, our cytotechnologists, all of these personnel are in short supply, making it very difficult. And I think we're scrambling to find ways to do more with less, if you will, find ways to cut out inefficiencies, find ways to leverage technology and other tools to allow us to be more efficient at our jobs while continuing to maintain and preferably enhance quality and safety. So a lot of what we're doing is looking at processes and people trying to make sure everyone's operating at the top of their licenses and make sure that our processes are as effective as they can be for the diagnoses and the data and test results we have to produce. Let me let me follow up on that and ask you then in terms of using technology um, to try to maybe offset some of the losses in terms of other resources. Where do you stand currently uh, with digital pathology uses or applications or what is what is your organization thinking as a whole in terms of trying to gain some efficiencies? I'm so glad you asked, Keith. Um, we've actually just really started a true digital pathology journey. Like many other practices, we've been dipping our toes into it. We use a limited number of low volume scanners in order to support some of our pathologists that are in solo practice at our smaller hospitals, supporting them for frozen section diagnosis or if they have a difficult case that they want to show to one of our subspecialty experts at the larger hospitals. But we haven't been using it for primary diagnosis or extensively. Of course, we use microscope-based cameras for conferences, for live web conferencing, for consensus conferences. So as we become more of a system and less of a confederation of hospitals, we really want to leverage the expertise in our system, the people that have fellowship training so that we can do more inreach, if you will, for our consultations and diagnoses. So my associate, our vice president for integrated lab services, the technical side, and I actually went to Path Visions for the first time this year where we, <laughs> we learned a lot. And uh, we've been talking with all sorts of different vendors, learning about putting together image management systems, their capabilities, the scanner agnosticism and the AI agnosticism that's developing, and really trying to build the use cases that will help us leverage expertise, leverage the ability to provide the subspecialty sign out that clinicians are asking for, and more efficiently distribute slides from centralized histology hubs instead of driving glass all over the DC metropolitan area. Bob, let me ask you then from a, a broader perspective in terms of what you've seen. I remember um, years ago, uh, mid to late 90s, you gave a talk at what was then APIIII uh, at the Pittsburgh right. Hotel. And so uh, now if we look back 25 years, two and a half decades, can you speak to where we have been with digital pathology, where we are today, and, and where you think it's going um, from, from your perspective? 
Sure. I mean, I think all of us who've been closely allied to the field have been waiting for a long time to see, certainly in the United States, uh, the flowering of digital pathology that we've begun to see in the last two years. There was a long hang time, as it were, uh, dwell time, uh, as people overcame the objections of cost, IT storage, uh, actual technical issues about scanners and storage and image analysis, all of which, you know, plagued us uh, for 20 years and provided a lot of reasons not to get into digital pathology. Uh, but today, uh, I think the overwhelming, the interesting fact to me is that digital pathology has been most successful in European countries where, lo and behold, there's this serious shortage of surgical pathologists. So the technology takes the place of the individual at the scope and the individual sites where the care has to be rendered. Now, with the shortage of pathologists in the United States, we're beginning to feel the very same thing. And I think that has stimulated greater adoption. That's why many people were going to lab visions for the first time. That's why the, all the pathology meetings have been dominated with AI and digital pathology. And I would imagine that's going to continue. And the second point that, as Dr. Larson knows, the demand for subspecialty pathology is almost the opening ante for anyone who's going to offer a specialty pathology service. Right. right. And so uh, we, we really need to be able to move the cases around to put them in front of the experts. If you uh, look at the rates of consults at Mayo or Cleveland Clinic or the University of Michigan, uh, they're just astronomical. These these things are really exploding uh, for a very good reason. And as I think we all know, the differential between the care offered in the community and in the academic medical center, it's widening. And that has to be a system concern for everyone responsible for a system. I'm sure you agree with that, don't you, Dr. Larson? Oh, absolutely. We're seeing more and more of those requests. Uh, our system includes nine acute care hospitals. In nine acute care hospitals, for example, I have five hematopathologists scattered amongst three hospitals so that I need to be able to get specimens from the other six hospitals to those experts as needed, whether it's just to look at a case and provide guidance as to what tests to do next, what immunohistochemistry, how to interpret it, or whether it's a matter of, gee, that looks like a really tough case. I think you'd better just send me the slides and the blocks so I can handle it. The clinicians, of course, are learning more and more about what subspecialty pathologist is during their, their training programs. And so they're coming even to our community hospital saying, I want a key pathologist that I can go to who's gonna handle all of my breast tumor boards. I don't want it to be a rotation of multiple people. I want to be speaking the same language with someone. And so we're finding that to leverage that expertise, we need the technology. It needs to be there to help us and support us because we have the brains in the system. We just need to link them up with the right tasks and the right use cases. 
Dr. Larson, then let me ask you, um, you know, in terms of, of today and as you go down this journey, uh, what would you hope to anticipate from CLIA? Uh, we now have some FDA approval over the past five years here for different systems uh, from the manufacturers in terms of validation for primary diagnosis. But from the regulatory reimbursement perspective, what do you hope to see in the future in terms of having access to these subspecialists where he or she may be located and perhaps even extending your brand? Um, I, I think that all of those things have to happen, but I, I've been considering a lot this question of FDA validation and CLIA, because usually when we think of these things, we think of it from the clinical laboratory side where everything is really well-defined. We all know what sensitivity and specificity and precision and accuracy are and how to do that. But when you think about digital pathology, there's really not been any FDA oversight of what a pathologist does at the microscope. That's a diagnostic skill we're trained to do. We perform OPPE, the ongoing professional physician evaluations, FPPE, the focused evaluations. We do pathologist competency, but there's not really been any CLIA or FDA-based, these are the expectations for sensitivity and specificity. Now we've introduced these machines for digital pathology and I think that that raise, has raised some questions as to how you validate that. It really is more like what we do at the microscope than what we do with the chemistry analyzer. So I, I think that the current practice where people can self-validate is something that's going to have to continue because you're never going to be able to look at the interaction of every single image management system with every single scanner as it's currently being done. Right. I'd, I'd add, too, that uh, there have been a, a great many thoughtful studies about validating digital pathology versus conventional microscopy. Uh, we've published quite a few at the CAP. We have CAP guidelines on these validations. But almost all of them boil down to uh, uh, Make your diagnosis on a glass slide using your microscope. Go away for however many hours it takes for you to forget the case and then come back and look on it at a computer screen and let's see if there's still agreement, uh, not only amongst a group, but amongst a, an individual pathologist. Is my judgment at the scope as good as my judgment on the screen? I mean, I think that's how we're advancing, at least at the moment. And... Uh, I think that's how we learn pathology more or less, and I think that's how we practice pathology more or less. So I don't see a way out of that dilemma. Do you, Dr. Larson, or do you, Keith? You've, you've been in this field as long as anyone. Um, as it was once said, uh, you know, there's, there's, there's art and science. Right. <laughs> of course. Yeah, I, I was going to say, I, I think that the... AI tools that are being developed, which really are more diagnostic support than true artificial intelligence and that the system truly thinks for itself. Those, I have a better concept of a more standard type of validation than whether or not 
it's benign or malignant on the slide, whether or not it's a clear cell renal cell carcinoma or a papillary renal cell carcinoma, you know, and that gets to the difference between the art and science in these modalities. Sure. Good point. Bob, let's go back to an issue um, both of you have brought up, um, and that's in terms of pathologist shortage currently. Um, and I can go back to when I started medical school 30 years ago, the pathologist downtown would come in and lecture to us and tell us that pathology was a lot of fun. The most interesting cases in the hospital ended up under the microscope. You can make a decent living, but don't go into it. There's no jobs. And uh, fortunately, by the time I finished uh, med school internship residency and fellowships and military payback, there were plenty of jobs. Um, and so we're in that position again. And I'll reference, um, you know, as late as 2013, Raboy and others uh, writing this up in the archives in terms of a predicted pathologist shortage beginning by 2015. I think a lot of people downplayed that and um and question that and that it, it might take full effect by about 2020 or so and and maybe perhaps the public health emergency helped that or um rap um made it go faster uh but in any event we are where we are um you know how did we get here and how do we get out of it well, that's a that's a real good question for organized pathology and all the academic departments. I can take a stab at it by suggesting that nothing solves uh, a shortage of something important as well as a shortage of that very thing. In other words, all of a sudden, this becomes a much more attractive field uh, when you real when you hear about people being offered signing bonuses to begin their pathology practice. When you I hear about third year residents who are being bombarded by calls and letters, uh, seeing if they'd have an interest of about coming to a given practice of whatever type, whatever geographic area. So I think it's real shortage. I think the CAP and many other groups have rallied at the, at the very uh, nadir of uh, promotion of this field to medical students and have, have got some very active programs underway to tell medical students what the specialty is really like. And uh, in part, of course, we have to combat the recent trends in medical school education, which more or less omits a pathologist. Um, and uh, so far, uh, the early returns are pretty good. They had the best match, from what I can tell, that we'd had in about 15 years in the last residency match. Do you think there will be some reliance upon or some need for... Um, AI, broadly speaking, AI in terms of screening slides like we like we have done for two decades now in cytology, mm -hmm. um, sure. pre-screening, some form of, of robotic machine assistance um, during this gap until until we can recruit enough students into enough residencies. Well, the, I mean, the, I'll answer that in the in the way of saying it has always been the ultimate goal of the people who've understood digital pathology best 
that the data once digitized lends itself to analysis and application in a way that it could never do in the analog world of a light microscope. And uh, I think that's really going to pay off. I'm not sure that's going to alleviate the shortage because as long as I've been around in pathology, uh, we've jettisoned very, very few things. We just keep adding things on to other things. All right. So we still do a lot of flow studies in the wet cancers, and then we do molecular studies on top of those, and we get to, to into great case complexity. So I, I think we're we're going to likely be there. Let me let me address the same question. The one, you, Dr. The, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no, please, Dr. Larson. Let me address the same question to you in terms of in terms of your group trying to account for uh, it sounds like broad shortages as well as shortages and and subspecialties trying to use man or woman and machine mm -hmm. instead of man or woman alone. I think that we have the advantage of being in the DC metro area, which has sort of facilitated my recruiting. This is a desirable area for people to come. However, I can say that for the first time within the last year, I'm seeing more of a challenge recruiting people for smaller community hospitals where they might be the only pathologist there. It, it's very easy to, to recruit someone to come into a hospital where they have multiple colleagues up and down the halls, but some of these folks recruiting them somewhere where they're gonna have to use electronic means to communicate with those colleagues and get those curbside side consults, it, it's a little more difficult. And I think the same is probably true of very rural areas. Um, People are trained to want to be with a group. They're trained in programs with multiple people, and that's what they're looking for. Another thing I've started thinking about, though, in terms of getting people to go into pathology, besides the fact that we don't let them get the excitement of microscopic diagnosis uh, during medical school training or, or even in, in high school, um, is that in speaking with friends and colleagues, whose children are going into different areas of medicine, there's a trend to shift work. They've given up the on-call system. People who are family medicine practitioners are doing shift work. They're not taking call. And with pathology, it's always been, this is a great life. We predominantly are a day-based practice. And yes, you do have to take call in evenings and weekends, and a lot of younger physicians are looking for a work-life balance that gives them more certainty. They're more comfortable with the shift idea than the on-call idea. And what might I do over the weekend since I don't know if I'm going to get called? Or I want a work-life balance, I want a job share with someone, or I want to go part-time. Pathology hasn't, in my experience, defined those things well in order to accommodate what people are looking for today. So there are times I wonder if that's part of our challenge, is whether pathology offers enough lifestyle options to help encourage people to go into it. Interesting. Let me, let me follow up on that and ask you 
if you think the the role of the pathologist is changing um and and just in my career um to bob's earlier point i think um you know albeit um during the day uh limited weekends uh largely i'll say chained to a microscope providing microscopic diagnoses and descriptions and uh that's how we trained and that's what we knew what we were doing um increasingly there are additional data points of uh, disparate data largely from other laboratories uh, specifically flow molecular next-gen sequencing multiple instances of next-gen sequencing for multiple vendors circulating tumor cells trying to incorporate all of that into a uh, timely synoptic report it, it seems to me, I, I think AI is inevitable, and, and I think the pathologists of the future will use their hands, more, hands less and their eyes more uh, in terms of incorporating all of that data, much like we've seen in radiology, I think. Um, you know, we'll be moving a mouse rather than a microscope slide. I think that's inevitable. But maybe you can address the role of the pathologist here in the next 10 years. Well, I, I'd like to think the role of the pathologist has been changing. A uh, number of years ago, the CAP had a program promoting the transformational pathologist and working on helping pathologists discover the tools and the um, impetus within themselves to get away from being behind the microscope, to interact with clinicians, to demonstrate the value that they bring. And I think that in many cases, we have done that with the tools we have to date. Certainly, the laboratories, test menus, and compendiums have gotten so large and so complicated that clinicians who have a specific scope of practice can't be aware of everything all the time. And many of us have played roles where we have worked on helping develop algorithms, helping recommend testing, helping recommend uh, ways of, of diagnosing things, diagnostic workups. Um, Michael Laposada speaks to this a lot and has put into practice ways of people saying, I've got a COAG problem. You work it up. Do what you need to do to get me the answer in the most efficient way. So I think the groundwork is there for pathologists to continue to expand on that role and on that way of interacting with clinicians to continue to integrate and synthesize information in ways that improves patient care and patient safety. Right, I would, uh, I'd echo that. And let's get back to this idea of where where is this demand for subspecialty pathology coming? It's not only because the clinicians, surgeons, medical oncologists at all want a, a triply fellowship trained pathologist looking at the case material that they themselves are specialized in. They want the consultation. Uh, ask yourself, Keith, you know this, and Dr. Larson, in your system, I know you know this. How many hours your pathologists are spending 
preparing for tumor board, explaining esoteric tests within the tumor board, uh, explaining, uh, you know, why are we testing for a a mutation that affects only 1% of non-small cell lung cancers, and yet we still say we need to investigate this for the sake of optimal patient care. Uh, I mean, it's really bringing this knowledge to bear on the treatment of the patient. And uh, it has a great analogy, uh, you know, outside after through the pandemic and afterwards, we realize infectious disease is itself a very complicated business for pathologists. And, you know, routinely in laboratories, uh, you know, we identify the bug, then we test for what will actually inhibit the growth of the bug. And uh, that goes up to the doctor who then writes the prescription for the right antibiotic, at least if it's supposed to work that way. And I, I'm be- increasingly seeing the targeted therapies are really growing out of these interactions uh, with expert pathologists and the, and the treating physicians. That's a big demand. It is. Um, and so uh, we are guests of Diagnexia here. Let me ask you, Bob, you know, this seems like the perfect storm here. We have a shortage of pathologists you, you uh, alluded to earlier, um, perhaps analogous to other countries, other continents. We have a shortage of pathologists like we've never had in this country. We have um, a uh, unfavorable, let's say at this point, November 29th, appears to be unfavorable reimbursement environment. We have uh, the same medical legal issues regarding uh, access to rapid consultation from international experts. It seems, and we have the digital pathology technology now on validated instruments uh, from a manufacturer's perspective. It seems to me the perfect storm for a consultation service remote international. I mean, I, it seems obvious to me that that's a direction that people will tend to. I'll tell you the other part of this, I'll call it mini AI that we see, uh, where there's an FDA-approved interpretive software. I, I will avoid the AI tag. Those are very rapidly accepted. And I would imagine, and I said this a couple of years ago, with the very first FDA-approved AI applications in digital pathology, I can't imagine a serious healthcare system that would not want to adopt those things if only for their medical legal uh, liability. I mean, I would if I were selling some of these things, I'm sure I think I might go to the risk management office before I went anywhere else in a health system because uh, if you miss it and you haven't been using an FDA-approved AI device to sharpen or confirm your diagnosis, I think you could be in a lot of trouble. Yeah. I think it'll be a few years till we get to that point. Right. Well, you know, Dr. Larson, it, I've seen uh, immunohistochemistry, particularly automated immunohistochemistry, come online, wide-scale adoption, but that took a while. I've seen questions concerning multicolor flow be an issue for adoption mm-hmm. in terms of suspicion and specificity, sensitivity to your prior points. Uh, a lot of hand-wringing with fish, a lot of hand-wringing with uh, molecular diagnostics before we accepted the boxes and sent out the blocks. It seems to me, though, that 
perhaps, you know, this burgeoning generation of pathologists is much more comfortable with adopting the AI type algorithms that Bob referenced in terms of diagnostics? Are we seeing perhaps less suspicion uh, adopting these technologies? I think it's definitely true that the younger pathologists who have been digital everything their whole lives are much more accepting and much more eager to jump in and try things. One of the difficulties in a pathology practice looking to adopt digital pathology and AI is identifying those use cases that are going to motivate enough of the practice to reach the tipping point and have people want to use it. Just the other day, I had a medical director at one of my hospitals telling me she had a challenge because she had a pathologist who didn't want to use the dictation system that had a contract with CAP for the synoptic reports to be part of their system where you could just fill in the blank, but this individual was choosing to go online and find things and retype them and fill them all in instead of using the dictation system. And that was causing errors. You know, there, there are things like that where the technology is our friend and we need to demonstrate and get people to see the value it brings in saving time, in increased accuracy, in better patient care, in better and more consistent communication with clinicians. Because of course, historically, pathologists have always signed things out in their own lingo. I can look at diagnoses and I know which are mine and which belong to Susie and which belong to John and which belong to Ed, it's easier for our clinicians, the more synoptic, the more routine, the more standard we go, the easier it is for them to understand what we're telling them, take those diagnoses and use them for patient care. And the younger people are much more willing to try these things. Bob, what are you hearing in terms of um, hopefully a change, a change of heart and a change of mind uh, from uh, collectively our laboratory partners, at least for hospital-based pathologists, um, from lab VPs and lab managers in terms of uh, capital investments and budgets um, for digital pathology? perhaps to bring molecular in-house. There, I think historically there's been a reluctance to do so without an ROI. But as we've discussed, I think there's perhaps uh, a more definitive need with a lack of pathologists. Um, are you seeing any movement on that front in terms of some of the decision makers, check writers? Well, I think the systems are badly strained. It's not as if all the other parts of the healthcare system or a healthcare uh, system like MedStar is throwing off vast amounts of cash, and somehow the pathology and lab medicine operations are this are the you know the losers in this thing. Almost everybody at the moment is a loser if you realize what you're paying for contract nurses, if you realize all these other costs and the inflationary costs, but. At the end of the day, I mean, pathologists are dealing with the the most severe diseases that are most threatening to the health and lives of patients. And as long as they are, I do believe that there's a lot of hope 
that we'll work our way out uh, towards having adequate support for the, all the technology and the people that we will need. As we all know, the diagnostics industry generally, when they build a better mousetrap, they do flourish. But what we have seen, particularly on the clinical side, in all too many cases, uh, people bring a mousetrap in and it's no better than the old mousetrap and it costs 20% more. And then people wonder why why is our new mousetrap not selling? That's because we have a pretty veteran a uh, savvy group of buyers. But I think the, the importance of pathology in the field, given the disease states it's dealing with, uh, almost assures there'll be some continued success. I, let me give you an example. One of the reasons I think there's such a difference between community and academic practice is that in the, in the academic practice, when an insurer is questioning the need to do an esoteric test, or an insurer is uh, raising questions about the cost of targeted therapy. Those academic institutions tend to be fitted out with people who are willing to get down in the trenches and wrestle with that insurer and get the approvals for the tests that they need. In the community setting, there's often, uh, there's just no resource that's quite like that and people get easily discouraged. Uh, I think people will learn as we sort of bridge this growing divide, which it has to be bridged, uh, how these things can be accomplished in the future. Let me follow up with you, Dr. Larson, in terms of um, Bob's points, you know, related to paying two and a half times more for the same nurse and inflationary pressures on supplies and necessities. Uh, the current state of affairs in terms of pathology and laboratory budget um, getting what you need. Well, he, here's where I think I sort of get to brag a bit um, because the way MedStar is structured, as a physician who is the executive director for the service line, I have access in the corporate building where I work to those in the executive team, those in the leaders of hospital medicine that allows me to advocate for pathology and laboratory medicine and what it needs and what it can bring. I won't say that means the pocketbooks are completely open, but I think that it gives me an advantage in being able to communicate and teach them and get them more willing to listen, more willing to spend, more willing to help us move pathology into the next century than I would if I were at an individual hospital or a smaller system where there were not physicians in these positions of oversight of ser service lines for the entire system. Um, you know, because certainly when you frame things in terms of, well, you just brought in this high-end clinical service line, this is what I need to do in the laboratory in order to support them and optimize what they do. And you can get that message to the right people. I, I think it does smooth the way a bit. Mm -hmm. Good. Thank you. I'd like to thank uh, Bob McGonigal and Dr. Larson for this participation. Uh, in the podcast 
and uh, thank all of you for listening.